Michael Hartle is the creator of the Ruby on Rails tutorial, a widely acclaimed guide for developers learning how to create Rails web applications. Michael, welcome to Software Engineering Daily. Happy to be here. Thanks for having me. You studied physics in university, even getting a PhD studying black hole dynamics at Caltech. How did you transition to software engineering and what motivated your decision to switch careers? That's a good question. Uh, you know, I've been programming for a long time. I started when I was, I don't know, 11, 10, 11, 12, somewhere in there. I'm not even sure exactly. Um, so software has always been something I've been interested in. I've always been interested in technology and, and programming and so on. And there's actually a lot of that in uh, in science, too. These days, if you do any sort of research in astrophysics or, or you know, like a lot of physics and, and astronomy uh, involve a lot of computational work. So I was actually doing a lot of software right from the start when I started doing research when I was an undergrad at, uh, at the Harvard-Smithsonian Center for Astrophysics working in uh, solar physics. That was mainly working in a language called IDL, Interactive Data Language, kind of like MATLAB. It's a, an array-based language. It's good for image processing. Tons of software development for that. Um, my PhD research was in, uh, in black hole uh, in spiral dynamics, and that involved writing numerical integrators, visualizing the results of uh, of the uh, integration runs. So there's tons of software development there too. So it, it's a, it's actually not that big a transition in the sense that you're doing software development all the time anyway. Uh, but what happened is when I was in grad school, I started to think that I would be more interested in taking an entrepreneurial route after I was done rather than going into academia. And so while I was in grad school, I, uh, I learned de web development on the grounds that that was a really useful skill for an entrepreneur. Uh, and I didn't realize at the time that my first successful company would be one uh, that would teach people how to make web applications, <laughs> sort of um, selling, selling the, uh, the, the pickaxes to the miners, so to speak. Um, but so it really was motivated by an interest in entrepreneurship and uh, a desire to have sort of have more control over the direction that I w would be able to go in my career. Because academia is, is a great option for some people, but it's it's really quite confining in the sense that you, I was like a lot of people in grad school, I was tired of my research by the time I was done. And I could have gone, I mean, I, I had, you know, I would likely have, have gotten a, a good postdoc. My advisor told me um, that I should apply to this uh, a named postdoc at MIT, and that I would probably get it if I applied. So, I, a, a lot of people assume it's weird. In, people inside academia they think there's nothing better than being an academic. So, if you left, it must be because you're no good. But really, I, my my advisor, who is like not has notoriously high standards, actually, the first time I really realized that, that he thought I was any good was when he said, "Yeah, you should apply to this postdoc at MIT that you can't even apply to unless you get recommended by a full faculty member, um, and uh, you'll." probably get it. I'm like, oh, really? Wow, that's awesome. Like, I, I wouldn't, wouldn't necessarily have guessed that. Uh, but it, I, I would have ended up going to MIT maybe for a postdoc and doing the same research I was tired of <laughs> at that point. Uh, yeah, so you have to take a job wherever you get it uh, because it's so, uh, you know, unless you're like one of the, the few best in the world at what you do, I mean, really like, you know, fields level, Nobel Prize level uh, research, you, you have to take the, the job that you get. And I wanted to be more in in control of my fate than that. Yeah, I have an older brother who is in academia right now, and he's um, he's doing some postdoc work. Um, and he's he's also a programmer, but he's more heavily involved in biology stuff. Um, but you know, we have this back and forth all the time about I'm, I'm like trying to tell him, you know, all the things that you don't like about academia would be solved if you left and did something on your own. Yeah, um, but perhaps. Um, I don't know. Perhaps there are certain things that you 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 simply can't pursue. I mean, he he always comes back to this idea of basic science research that you can't do uh, in in perhaps in the field of entrepreneurship. Do you, do you think that's true? Is there this mutual exclusivity between basic science and doing a business? I, I certainly think there's. I mean, they're not necessarily aligned. Like as a as a business, you generally need to find a market that you can address right away. But if you look at some of the things that are coming out of Silicon Valley now, like Y Combinator, for example, is getting active in longer term research. They've just recently announced a, a, an, an initiative around uh, AI, artificial intelligence, and Elon Musk is involved in that. So it's uh, I think that 
there absolutely is uh, a way that those two things can eventually come together. Um, whether you can make money in the short term on it, well, probably not. But um, once you've you've built up a network of really smart people, a lot of whom have made a lot of money, well, now you can do some really cool stuff in the long term. So I actually do think that you can do both. And I also think academics have an incentive to overestimate the importance of their own research. Um, it, there, there's a if you look at the incentive structure of academia, sometimes it's uh, it, it's described as publish or perish. You have to yes. publish or else your your uh, career will die. Uh, and so as a result of that, I think there's a lot of stuff that like it doesn't really have to be done. And I mean, I, I would have I think I could have done some interesting physics research, but um, I don't. I don't flatter myself to think that there was the humanity had such a great loss that I didn't do more work on binary black hole and spiral. Um, if you, if, I mean, really, the, the the groundbreaking work is done by a relatively small number of people. You do need a lot of people to do sort of. I mean, it's kind of a power law distribution, I think. Uh, mm-hmm. So uh, it's you know, if a potential Feynman say were to opt out, then that might be a a, a loss, um, but. Uh, you know, it's pretty hard to be operating at that level. But truthfully, even the, the very best people, it's still pre- it gets pretty esoteric pretty fast. Where you think, all right, well, how many people in the world really are going to read your papers? Like, you know, my papers were pretty well received in grad school, but maybe maybe a, a couple dozen people tops really read them for comprehension mm-hmm. um, and actually cared about them. Um, whereas, like, more people have read the real tutorials since we started this podcast, <laughs> right? Uh, right? Right. So, so I, I feel like there, there's, if you're interested in, in actually having an impact, certainly scientific research is one way of doing that, but I feel like becoming an entrepreneur is a much likelier way to help people. And, and certainly my own... Uh, you know, like my own experience has been very gratifying that a lot of people have uh, have been able to benefit from the stuff that I've done. So many of the people that I've interviewed who have moved from academia to programming, they often go down the road of data science. And we see fewer people who have moved to the area of full stack web application development. Did you consider a more quantitative route? I did. I, I looked at finance as one of the things that a lot of people with uh, PhDs in physics or mathematics end up going to Wall Street. And I, I certainly could have made a lot more money if I'd gone that route. Uh, but I like making things, and you, it's, uh, I, I find it very gratifying to, to make new things. And I also I like actually helping individual people. Um, so it's, it's true that I, I have this background in, uh, in science, and, and it's still definitely a big part of, of, of what influences my worldview. But when I was in grad school, I was also a, 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 an instructor. I was, they say a teaching assistant, but I was the primary instructor. It, it, the way Caltech works is there's a lecture professor, but the people who actually teach you how to solve problems are the, the, the TAs. And so I, I had you know, a pretty sizable number of people every, twice a week, for, you know, two hours of, of, uh, of rest, what they call recitation section a week. And I was, I was good at it. I was very successful as a classroom instructor. So what I'm doing right now, actually, and what I eventually realized was the right thing for me to do as an entrepreneur, was to turn my teaching skill set into products. So that's actually what I'm doing now. Is, is it, and I, I have a knack for explaining hard subjects or counterintuitive subjects in a way that is accessible and, and all, not, not just that is clear, but that connects with people um, emotionally as well. That I, I'm one of the things I do. I, I, I've given a talk about this where um, you, if you can embed your, your your technical narrative in some sort of story arc, and you can use this idea that humans are really good at, at understanding things through story. If you can motivate every every step of the way, so people really feel like they're, they're being carried along by this narrative, it's a lot easier to learn that way. So, uh, so actually, I, even though I could have gone into something that used my quantitative experience, um, I mean, I am in the sense I do, I've done a lot of software development for my own companies, um, but, and I think a lot of the subjects are, are very technical. Um, the, the actual skill set that I'm using is the, the teaching and explaining skill set, which, which I find personally more gratifying. Like I said, even though I could have made a lot more money if I'd gone in and into a, like work at a hedge fund or something do, uh, in, in, uh, in finance, I wouldn't have been using this skill set and it wouldn't have been as much fun. Sure. So the Ruby on Rails tutorial, this is an extremely popular tutorial. I've used it myself. I think most of the people I know who have learned Rails have used it. 
let's talk some about Rails history. What what was unique about the Ruby on Rails tutorial when it first came out? Like when you started working on this tutorial, why were there no other resources or were there other resources for learning Rails? There were lots of resources for picking up little pieces of Rails. And I think my approach when I started with the Rails tutorial was to look at it through the eyes of someone who who taught physics for five years at, at Caltech. And I, I developed an intuition for how big a subject was. Uh, and in my view, most of the resources for learning Rails and for learning web development generally underestimated the difficulty of the subject. They would take the view that, oh, this is just a 20... Different, 20 web 20 page web, web tutorials or a couple hours of video and I looked at, at the subject I thought no it's much harder than this um, I had written my own sort of half-baked web framework in Python um, in the like 2004 2005 or so this is right around the time just, just I, I'd started that before rails uh, had even come out so I knew how how hard web development was and and I had a good intuition for the size of the subject and I thought no this is more like a like a, a one term like a quarter course. 10 to 20 hours of instruction and th- that just didn't exist. Um, there was n- there was no one out there who had addressed that market from that perspective at, at that at the time. Um, so I felt like people almost saw you know it's the, one of these things when you when you, when you start to, to teach a subject and you, you try to make it as accessible as possible, you realize just how much there is that you know that you just assume. But no, you once you make that explicit, it's like, wow, I make the the real tutorial is as short as I can make it. It's over 700 pages. <laughs> yeah. So, you know, I remember the first time I used Rails. And up until that time, the only thing I had used to build web apps were Java frameworks. And yeah. I remember the first time I, you know, I made a Rails app and I hit my server with the browser I, I remember feeling such a surge of opportunity and a feeling of how simple it it was to get something going. Was I mean, you've been around for a little longer than I have. Was there any other framework that had such simplicity, or was Rails really the first one? Yeah, I think Rails was probably the first one that kind of put it all together. And again, because I'd like written my own half-baked framework, I knew the problems that that Rails was solving. I knew them really well. And when I first saw Rails, I thought, oh, wow, it just puts it all together. It's all the, all of those things that I, that I hacked together on my own, you know, and, and on my own uh, project, Rails had actually codified and, and, and put, it just had baked into the framework. And then, you know, that's because David Heimeyer Hansen developed it as part of a real project, as part of building the initial version of Basecamp, and then he extracted the framework from Basecamp. So it was always really practically oriented. But because I, I knew the, the problems that, that I had as a web developer, and I saw that Rails solved all those problems, I thought, well, I need to learn this. Uh, it, and I, I, you know, I think if, if Django had come out just a little bit sooner, I might have gone that route, because I already knew Python really well. I had to, uh, to learn Ruby in order to, uh, to use Rails. But my back, I would, you know, people sometimes ask, well, how long will it take to learn Ruby? Well, it depends on where you're coming from. All right, it depends on what you already know. So having already studied a bunch of different languages, including Python and Scheme, which is a, a dialect of Lisp, um, I felt like I could probably pick up Ruby pretty quickly. And, um, and, and you know, it, it, it definitely took some work, but I was able to get up to speed pretty fast. And, um, and it really seemed like you know, Rails just put everything together. So I thought, well, let's, let's give this thing a try. And I really and I liked it. So Python, I mean, Ruby on Rails is more popular than Django for sure. Even though Python is probably a more popular language than Ruby. Yeah. Why do you think that happened? Was that just an issue of timing, or was there actually something about the framework that did a really good job? Or you know, I, it's it's hard to say. I actually don't know. I mean, I've looked a little bit at Django, but I don't know it well by any means. No, um, I don't either. I I, th- I think that there probably was a lot of timing. Um, there is something though that that's different about Ruby. Uh, so Python has huge adoption in science and uh, you know data science. A lot of Python, um, and there are some really big Django sites out there too. Um, but Ruby is a little bit more flexible than Python, and in particular because Ruby has uh, has anonymous blocks as as part of a like a, a common pattern and a, a lot of support for for making blocks. Ruby is better at Python at making domain specific languages or DSLs. It's, so, for example, if you look at Flask, which is a micro framework 
uh, for, for web applications in Python and compare it to a Sinatra, which is, uh, which is a, a Ruby micro framework, Sinatra is just, it's just so much more natural. It's just, it, there's, there's like a, a line that you can eliminate every single, every single method. You can, there, there's one fewer line in Sinatra because of Ruby blocks. And it feels like you're writing in a language that is designed for making web apps. So Ruby lets you do this in a way that, that uh, very few languages do. Uh, so I think that that's part of real success is that it, it, it uses the flexibility of Ruby to make a domain-specific language for writing web applications. And as a result, it, it just feels a lot more natural when you're writing it. You can write more compact code. Um, it's, a, it's easier to remember how to do things, or at least that's been my experience. So thinking in a more uh, modern context, uh, we're kind of seeing the industry move from predominance of Rails applications to full-stack JavaScript applications becoming more predominant. Do you think this shift is also happening at the early education level or is is a new developer still choosing to learn Ruby on Rails and eventually migrating to full stack JavaScript or how do you see that shift occurring? You know, I haven't I've been paying some attention to this, but it it's hard to know for sure. Um, I'm among other things I I'm in, interested in at some point in getting involved in the JavaScript market. Uh, there there's a, a problem with it though, which is that it seems like every 6 months the exact su- suite of technologies changes, right? So mm-hmm. it's like there there isn't a a Ruby on Rails of of the JavaScript world that has has become the standard. And so from the perspective of the the educational market, it's it's harder to, to know exactly how to address it. Um, one of the things that I've thought about is that everyone needs to learn how to write web applications at some level, right? If you're going to, if you're going to write web apps in JavaScript, you're going to have to know what a web app is. That's a lot of work. So the Rails tutorial is actually, if you look at the subtitle, it's actually learn uh, web development with Rails. It's not, mm. um, it's, it's actually not designed specifically as a tutorial to teach you Rails per se, although it, it is good for that, and a lot of people use it for that purpose. It's really designed as an introduction to web application development, which happens to use Ruby on Rails. So I would say that anyone who wants to learn to build JavaScript web apps would do well to to go through the Ruby on Rails tutorial, learn what a web app is, and then they'll be in a better position to, uh, to understand what problems the JavaScript frameworks are solving. I mean, I, I've had a lot of people tell me, actually, that there are Django shops, and they'll say we, we have people go through the Ruby on Rails tutorial and then and then teach them Django because huh. because they understand that web application development, no matter which technology you use, has to solve a, a common set of problems. Uh, so my hope is that eventually I will be able to uh, to offer some some JavaScript products, um, but 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 I feel like sending people through the Rails tutorial is still probably a good idea. Yeah. You know, I think you're, I think you're actually right. I did an interview recently with uh, a coding boot camp, and um, they taught Ruby on Rails. They teach Ruby on Rails, and I was a little critical because I was like, "Well, you have these brand new people who are coming into the boot camp, and you're teaching them Rails, and they don't know any better." But perhaps the job market is more demanding of full stack JavaScript at this point. But I think you make a good point in that perhaps it doesn't matter because you don't want to teach a new bootcamp student hey here's express and then here's the all the front end frameworks you can use and there are no best practices go uh you know you want to say here's rails here's how things are done you can do other things but here's how things are done yeah i think if you expand your scope a little bit instead of thinking of learning full stack web app development with JavaScript, what you're doing is learning how to build web applications as a, as a general problem. And I understand there's a temptation to, to just pick one language and go with it. Um, I feel like that that's really short sighted though. I don't know any good developers who only know one language. Yeah. (laughs) Right. Like you're, you're, and I also don't particularly like JavaScript. Um, I I feel Mm. like there are real advantages to using Ruby in, uh, when you can, which is on the server, uh, so sure. What what did what are the trade offs you see? Well, it's it's hard to really to pin it down. I mean, I feel like Ruby is just so much more elegant. It's it's. I just I my subjective experience writing Ruby is is much happier. Uh, 
But the truth is, I haven't done a whole lot of JavaScript recently. Um, I did a bunch sure. of JavaScript in the early 2000s. And uh, so I, I do plan to look at this under, I mean, I, we can talk a little bit more about it too. So what I'm working on now is um, a, under a sort of a, a more general approach to teaching people technological uh, tech, uh, tech, tech skills, which are more broadly defined. Sure. And JavaScript definitely fits in with, uh, with that mission. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, so we'll so we'll get into that. Um, but uh, you know, I, there's we should talk a little bit more about Rails. Um, so David Hinnemeyer Hansen, or DHH as mm-hmm. he's commonly known, the creator of Ruby on Rails, he had a popular post back in 2012 called "Rails is Omakase," where he talks about certain aspects of Rails that there's a vocal minority that they sometimes criticize about the framework. Is there anything about Rails that you're not a fan of that you would change? You know, that, 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 that's a good question. I'm actually not the best person to ask for this, though, because I operate at, at an unusual part of the market. So I actually don't do a lot of Rails application development day to day. In fact, I've so my, my current venture, which we, we can talk more about, um, I, have, I have a couple of strong co-founders who are, they, they actually do on most of the web app development um, for, for my for my current company. Uh, so wh- my, from my perspective, I, what I'm interested in is how can I break down this subject so that it's as accessible as possible to people who are just starting out with, with Rails or with web development. Uh, so the, the kinds of things that people run into that they don't like about Rails, I don't run into at that level. Uh, so there's there's nothing that that comes that, that sort of springs to mind. I mean, I I would say that it's uh, I mean, they're just like minor things. Like it, Rails takes a while to just to start up, right? <laughs> right. But like, this is not the kind of this is not a a showstopper, and there are various ways to work around it. Um, but the, I, there's nothing major. There's nothing about Rails where I think, oh, what a what a mess. This needs to be fixed. There's just like a sure. there's some friction in various places, but I feel like Rails has gotten to the point where it's mature enough that pretty much any web app problem you want to solve, it will help you solve. Yeah. So let, let's talk about your newest company, which is Softcover. What are you building? Yeah, actually, I can tell you more about that. So the, the Softcover itself is a it's a publishing platform for technical authors. It's a an ebook production tool chain and a sales and marketing platform. And uh, when when we started Softcover, there was always uh, an, it was always an open question: Do we want to go after the sort of the self publishing tool chain market, or do we want to mainly use this for making our own products? And so at this point, it's looking like the educational market is the better market to be in uh, for a couple of reasons. It's it's kind of a hard sell to get people to switch tool chains if they're if they're uh, self published authors. And when you're starting a company, you, you want, or when you're offering a product, you want what uh, investors sometimes call a, a hair on fire problem, which is you want your, your potential customers to come to you and say, my hair is on fire. Can you please put it out? You want them like not really particularly to care how much the, 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 the uh, solution costs or like you don't want them, you don't have to sell them on it particularly. You want them to know that they have a problem. And if you can solve that problem for them, then they're happy uh, to give you their business. Uh, and so I absolutely see that in the, uh, the educational market. When people are, are just starting out, they are, it's so hard to learn these subjects, you know, these, whether it's web app development or just uh, programming generally, tech skills generally. Uh, people are, they, they are just so grateful to find something that, that fits the way they learn. Uh, and So, so the, the problem that you're attacking, is it the publishers or is it the uh, you're trying to um, make education better for the peop- the students who are purchasing these educational products. It, the, the latter. I, I'm, I'm I'm trying to make things okay. better for for the for people who are learning these subjects. And so to to that end, uh, we've uh, started. It's all it's all powered by Softcover. We we've started a new website um, called under the brand Learn Enough to Be Dangerous at learnenough.com. And what I'm working on now is mainly a series of prerequisite tutorials for the Rails tutorial. Um, a lot of people have come to me and said, hey, is the Rails tutorial good for complete beginners? And the answer is not really. Mm-hmm. It's it's not designed for people who are uh, starting from scratch. It, it does its you know the best it can because a lot of people have used it that way anyway. And it, I'm really impressed actually at uh, when people get through it with no background. It's just, it takes a lot of determination. And often people will tell me they just go through it twice. <laughs> they do it once. 
just go back to the beginning and do it again, do it a second time. Uh, but what I, I realized though is that when that that's in, in what they call in the the entrepreneur business a proxy for demand. When people are saying uh, they're asking you, is it is there something you know, is this product good for complete right. beginners? Here, here's what, my terrible hack for right. solving this. What, what they yeah, uh, <laughs> what, what they're or what they're really saying is, if you had a product for complete beginners, I would like to use it. Um, and another thing that that I've discovered, which kind of really to my surprise, is that a lot of non-web developers have used the Rails tutorial. So I, last year, I went to a conference that uh, Amy Hoy runs called a Bacon BizConf. You're bringing home the bacon. And it's aimed at uh, software as a service, like bootstrapped companies. And the idea that you're bringing home the bacon, it means that you're charging right away, that you're trying to build a sustainable business right from the beginning. You're not one a, a VC funded startup that's going to try to get huge or die, but instead you're trying to build something that's, that's uh, which, and let me say, I have no problem with those kinds of companies. I, I know a lot of people, they like to, to rant against them, but a lot of companies, you know, think that's the only way they can succeed is to raise a bunch of money and, and uh, do all or nothing. But there are a lot of businesses that don't need to do that, that, that uh, nevertheless follow that model, just even just because that's what everyone else is doing. So anyway, I went to this conference that was full of like bu- business people, bootstrap, like sort of technical-ish, but not developers per se. And it was a small conference, like maybe 50 people. Probably a third of the people came up to me at one point or another during the conference and said, hey, I just want to let you know I really like the Rails tutorial. And I, and I, th- and I said, well, thank you. Like, I appreciate that. Why did you read the Rails tutorial? I don't understand. You're not a web developer. And they said, well, I wanted to know what the tech people were doing. I wanted to understand what web apps were and like just, just have a basic understanding of the technology behind what we were doing. And so this, the Learn Enough to be Dangerous uh, tutorials are, are aimed at the complete newbies, people who are really starting from scratch, and also at people who want to have technical skills generally, but don't necessarily want to become web developers themselves. Um, so, so that's uh, that's my, my current like what I'm personally working on is is this uh, series of prerequisites, and uh, a couple of them have launched. The the uh, they're. Uh, the, the written dude. This is a giant market, by yeah, the way. I yeah. know from 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 the from all the different interviews I've done lately with coding boot camps and coding education stuff. There are so many people who are migrating to programming as the savior of you know what the hell do I do? I'm unemployable right now. Right. How do I learn to code? So so what are the prerequisites? What do people need to know? Yeah, you know it's interesting. Part of I mean, it's just, as an educator, this is such a fun challenge. Like, how do I break down this subject, and what what is what's the order? And if you look at, at things that are aimed at, at beginners, if you look at like web app, web development tutorials, they'll they'll have like a section on oh here's the command line, and you know, open open up the the bash rc file with your text editor and and the the section it will literally just cover like five commands and i was looking at this and thinking people don't know what a text editor they've never even heard of what a text editor is they Mm -hmm. if you say we'll use the command line they don't know what a command line is they've never even heard of the idea of this thing and so i thought initially actually i thought well i can start by teaching people a text editor and i thought no you know the way i personally launch a text editor is always at the command line. And so I thought actually the first thing to teach is the command line. But that introduces an interesting bootstrapping problem because how do you teach the command line without a text editor? Because you need to have files that people are editing. You know, you need to have content that they're like using to they're they're gonna move it or they're gonna use less to look at the contents. And the way I solved that was to use echo and redirect. So the 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 Learn enough command line to be dangerous, which you can is linked from learnenough.com. Uh, starts with echo, echo hello world. That that's the hello world of the of the command line terminal, and then you learn how to redirect that to a file, and then you can manipulate that file. Uh, and so one of the the principles I use when I'm designing tutorials is I defer things as as far as I can. And I realized when doing this tutorial, I could defer directories until the last section. Most of these tutorials, they start you with directories right away. But I realized, no, we, we're going to spend quite a bit of time learning how to deal with files. And then only later will we bother with directories. And so that it, it gives you a, a, more, a more natural progression, I think. Um, so so the, 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 short, the small files are, are echo with redirect. And then you need a bigger file, though, if you're going to learn how to, uh, to use less or to grep it or that sort of thing, or to use a word, like word count to figure out how big it is. And so uh, to that end, I introduce curl. So uh, it's like, uh, this is how to download a web, you know, download a web page, download a file at the command line using curl. And uh, so that's the first tutorial is 
is a command line. It's a command line tutorial that uh, designed for people who don't even necessarily know what a command line is. The second tutorial is a text editor. And it starts off with the absolute, what I call minimum viable Vim, the absolute least amount of Vim you can get by with. Um, And I I basically warn people that Vim is hard. I don't recommend it as a text editor for a complete beginner, but it is a full strength text editor. And lots of, you can eventually, you could use this as your main text editor. But as quickly as possible, I I transitioned to uh, like more familiar text editors, and I specifically target uh, Sublime Text and Atom. Um, most of the, the tutorial uses Atom because Atom is, uh, is is free in both beer and speech senses of the term. But And better than Sublime? Uh, quite, quite, quite possibly. I, I, there, there, <laughs> I think there are pros and cons, but the, the, the bottom line is that the text, the learn enough text editor to be dangerous, who again, links at learnenough.com, uh, is, uh, is aimed at the generic skills of a proficient text editor or, you know, a proficient user of a text editor. So there's massive overlap. Like the, the diff, the diffs between sublime text and Adam at the level of this tutorial are negligible. Sure. Okay. So what is the end result of somebody who goes through the learn enough program? How much have I learned to code by the end of it? So the, the current sequence is uh, is planned up to an introduction to Rails. Learn enough Rails to be dangerous, and so you would be ready for you'd be very well prepared for the Rails tutorial. Ah, uh, and in fact, so even one of the other things that's interesting, like what's what's the third thing in the sequence? And it's not obvious, but the third of what I'm actually I'm, it has I've started it. I'm going to be working on it this week. The third tutorial in the sequence is learn enough Git to be dangerous even before anything else. And it's crazy. You think that's nuts to start to do Git before even HTML or, or CSS. But we're going to be doing some really cool stuff with it. So my co-founder, uh, Lee Donahoe, who's uh, he's a designer, he's been working on the HTML tutorial um, and, and the CSS tutorial as well. And because we can assume Git and text editor and uh, command line is a prerequisite, people are going to be launching full production websites to GitHub pages. In their, and in fact, even in the Git tutorial, I'm gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna sneak it in. So, so basically, people will be able to get through the sequence. But at any point, like it is useful at every stage, even if they don't want to eventually learn the Rails tutorial. Just being able to do, like, think of how awesome it is as a developer to work with someone, like a project manager or a designer, who can fire up a terminal, do a Git pull, open a text editor, make a change, make a commit, do a Git push. Right? That's like that makes your life so much better. Absolutely. So, okay, but here's here's one thing I'm curious about because <clears throat> a lot of the people that learn to code, like I remember when I was learning to code, the things that would really keep me going were those little nuggets of seeing something compile, seeing something display on a web page, almost the gamification aspect of it where you get that little dopamine response. Right. And I'm sure as an educator, you understand this. Right. How do you work that into an education process that is focused on, uh, you know, Echo Hello World and learning Git? Well, you know, I think this is part of the reason I I work in in this field is because I I really enjoy solving that problem. Uh, How how am I going to make this interesting? How am I going to make it? How am I going to give people that little rush of, of discovery that like, oh my gosh, I can't believe I just did that. That's amazing. Um, these, and so one of the things I do is in, I put in lots of exercises. I, I just force myself in every section to think, all right, how am I going to extend what we've just done? Um, it, it's actually kind of fun. I'll be going along and thinking, oh, this is a little bit too advanced. I don't want to cover this. I think, oh, that's an exercise. It's a perfect thing for the exercises, something that takes the built on the foundation and, and, uh, and extends it a little bit. Um, so, so I would say that that absolutely is a, is a, a problem. And that's, I, I love solving that problem. I love the, it, it's an opportunity for creativity to, uh, to come up with things that, that are interesting. So for example, with, um, you know, with the, uh, command line tutorial, there's, uh, an exercise, Rick, how are you going to echo something that has uh, quotes in it? 
How do you do that? Well, you have to nest. But that's hard. And it's, you think that's so trivial. Like, why does even anyone even care? And the answer is because they tried a couple times and they don't, it doesn't work. And, right. and when you try something a couple times and it doesn't work, and then you get it to work, you're like, it almost doesn't even matter what the uh, thing is. It's like, whoa, I, that was. There's this, so you get them frustrated first, yeah. and then you debug their frustration. Because that's really the, that's that's your lot in life as a technical person is you're always running into these little annoyances, and it's it's just a matter of like, all right, I'm going to power through this. I'm going to figure out, you know, maybe take a break, maybe come back and take a look at it. Maybe Google the some some things r- related to to my my problem, and and this actually plays into something that has turned out to be a theme in the the Learn Enough products, which is what what I call. Uh, technical sophistication. There's this, it's a soft skill. It's really hard to, to pin down exactly what it means, but it's, uh, it, it's a combination of knowledge and the ability to acquire new knowledge. So I'll have this, I, I'll just, I, I did, I'm actually ha- uh, having my mom go through the, the text editor or the uh, command line tutorial to, uh, she, so she, she has general. <laughs> that is the ultimate test. Yeah, so she has general computer knowledge, you know, knows how to use applications, but she'd never used a terminal before this. And um, I, I did a little, I did a Screen Hero session with her just to, to walk her through some things and, and see where she was getting stuck. And there was, uh, there, there was a, 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 something I wanted to do. I wanted to echo with a backslash N. Uh, so to get the new line, I want to do echo. So there's a, com- a command line option for echo to suppress the new line, and then I wanted to put the new line in explicitly. But on my system and on her system, so on OS 10, there was uh, it, it would actually would just print out the backslash n literally. It wasn't putting in a new line, and so I I said, well, you know, let's solve this. And I googled I googled around for the solution to my problem. Discovered that printf exists at the command line, which I didn't know. And I, I told my mom, I said, I did not know until this moment that you could use printf at the command line in OS 10, and yet we've discovered this. And then we discovered an undocumented option to echo that would let you oh. print out the that, that would turn the the backslash n into a literal new line, and and would actually put it in. And you know, would achieve the result we wanted. Like literally, you man echo, and it's not listed. But we found it, like some Stack Overflow thread or whatever. And so, and I said to my mom, "This is technical sophistication." Like yeah. I literally had no idea that these things were possible until this minute. But I have this sort of general skill to figure out. Like I know the kinds of things to Google, and it, it and then it's you combine that with an attitude. It's like, oh, okay, computer, you think you're not going to print that new line? Well, let me tell you something. You are going to print that new line. I'm going to figure out how to get you to print that new line, darn it. Well, and so if you don't have that technical proficiency, if you don't have the right attitude, then the feeling you might get uh, upon discovering that undocumented thing is like, I'm stupid or, you know, I, I am doing something wrong rather than, oh, this is cool. This actually exists. Yeah. So the attitude adjustment is definitely Definitely important. Right. So I, I want to come back to, to something that you said um, when you were talking about the bring what was it the Bacon Conference? Bring home the Bacon, ba- bacon Conference. Bacon Biz Conf. Yeah. Bacon Biz Conf. Yeah. So I mean the you know this podcast is typically about software engineering and I um, I try to restrain myself from going into matters of entrepreneurship. But you touched on it because I think there's a lot of entrepreneurship podcasts, but there's not a ton of software engineering podcasts. Yeah. But regardless. Um, <clears throat> I think a good number of my listeners are entrepreneurial or whatever that means. Um, and so, you know, you, you touched on a lot of things that, that I found interesting. The first one was, um, you know, this lifestyle business versus venture scalable business. Um, I find this conversation really interesting. Um, and, and I think it's particularly interesting for somebody like you because you went through Y Combinator, which yeah. is almost like the meat grinder of learning about how venture capital works, how investment works, how billion dollar venture scalable businesses work. So I'm just really curious to get your thoughts on how, like how that experience affected you, what your current perspective is on this, uh, you know, maybe the, the Silicon Valley miasma of we need to be venture backed versus we can have a lifestyle business. Um, you know, what are your thoughts on this? Yeah, I, I've, I have thought a lot about this. Uh, and, you know, there are some people who have, I mean, who we've even mentioned during this podcast who, who've kind of got a lot of attention bashing the VC model. And I understand what they're doing. Like they've, they've got a, an angle, they've got a brand, and, and they're, they're just going to 
they're they're using that angle to, to get attention. I know, uh, but I, f- I feel like th- there's really a, a false dichotomy being set up here between the lifestyle business and the venture back business, um, because what you're really doing is is you're you're making a company that potentially can scale up to lots of you know to, to many many users. Um, that that's a, a, what what distinguishes a a startup from another kind of business is that it can grow. In sort of non-linearly, um, in in the sense that you can you can add to maybe a hundred or a thousand times more users without having to hire you know a hundred or a thousand times more people, um, and so a lot of these software businesses that are sometimes kind of denigrated a little bit with the term lifestyle business. This is the way that VCs say or it's kind of they put you down. Uh, so the, the 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 way these these lifestyle businesses work, a lot of them are software businesses that could, in fact, become venture backed startups at some point. Uh, so I, I think that the criticism that's valid is, is this idea that you that you have to take the the venture capital route. Um, but so people, sometimes people will say, "Well, I would never take money for my company," and I think that that fundamentally misunderstands the nature of investment. Basically, you if you can bootstrap, you should, and in fact, everyone will tell you this. I, I've talked with. Um, with the, the people in uh, the founder of TechStars about this. I've talked with uh, the Y Combinator partners and, and founders about this. Everyone agrees you should bootstrap if you can. Um, you should take capital if you are at the point where taking capital is the right thing for your business. It sounds like a tautology. Um, but if, if you're capital constrained in your business, if you, if you see that you can take over a market, if you can win big by taking a million or two million or ten million dollar investment then you should do that um, you should you should understand the trade-offs though you should understand that um, it once you take a large amount of money you either have to get big or go home that's your so code academy for example is it's sort of in this learning to code space um, and they've taken a huge amount of money they've taken a mil- ten million dollars last time I checked so they have to get get bigger go home uh, whereas code school uh, was bootstrapped um, and they uh, Pluralsight bought them for I think it was thirty five million, uh, which if you've raised ten million dollars and you sell for thirty five million, like that's not actually that great a return for your <laughs> investors. Uh, but uh, if you're bootstrapped, it's a great return for the people who started it. Uh, so both models work. It's just a matter of what sort of market are you in, what what do you want your company to achieve, uh, and. You know, I think maybe one of the, the, the best examples of this that uh, Joel Spolsky has written about it with respect to to his company, his uh, software company, Fog Creek Software, uh, which makes fog bugs among other things, com- uh, contrasted with and Trello, right? Yeah, so, and Trello, and contrasted with uh, with an, another company he started, uh, which is uh, Stack Exchange, the makers of Stack Overflow, and basically Stack Overflow is in a land grab situation where either you're going to win or or die. And so if if you're in that situation, you have to take money because you're if you're if you don't, your competitors will and they'll they'll beat you. So I mean if you look at the successful companies like most most of the multi-billion dollar companies simply could not have succeeded without venture capital at some point. So what I would generally advise people to do is bootstrap if you can, focus on making a product that people that you know that people want that and especially if you can find a way to charge for it and if you get to the point where you're capital constrained you're like wow if we could just if we we could just uh, hire another 10 or 20 people we would we would be so much better off like we could really grow much much faster then you should take money uh, but if if you're in a business that you where you can keep bootstrapping indefinitely then you should do that and i the the y combinator people will tell you the same thing uh, and so, to be clear, the people who uh, I think you kind of subtly referred to as being vocal about this uh, is David Hennemeyer Hansen, who uh, he's talked a lot about this um, at, at, because his company Basecamp has not taken a dollar of funding, and um, he's very proud of that. And he's, uh, I think, I think part of it from his point of view is that a lot of it comes down to what is the lifestyle that you want? And I guess, you know, that does come back to the term lifestyle business, yeah. but like, you know, um, as, as Basecamp is a, is a non-venture funded business, uh, he is opting into a very different lifestyle than um, whoever is in charge of Trello, um, making their own productivity software that they raised a bunch of money for. Um, 
So in your personal experience, you know, the Rails tutorial, for example, has become a lifestyle business. Right. Um, well, and I think you you even called it that. I'm trying to denigrate you. Yeah. But you called it on that on your website. You drew inspiration from the Tim Ferriss four-hour work week. Yeah. Um, and so like, I can talk from my personal perspective. Uh, this show, Software Engineering Daily, feels like a lifestyle business right now. But it also feels like it could potentially be scalable is it important to know whether your business is a lifestyle business or when it's a lifestyle business or how do you like how 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 have you framed that in your personal experience yeah so I, I mean, with the life the lifestyle business label is it's sort of tough to to get away from uh, the, 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 the way I thought of the Rails tutorial was that I wanted it to be a medium risk medium reward business and that's actually something we, we didn't talk about uh, when we were talking about uh, you know lifestyle businesses versus venture-backed businesses. Um, the real tutorial's market is probably too small to justify a, like a full venture-backed startup. So it really, when you're talking about these these different kinds of businesses, often it really is just like, what's the addressable market size? Um, but So I, I will say that more many more people start startups than should, I think, and it's generally miserable starting a startup. Um, if, if you can start with something that's a little bit uh, narrower in scope and it's more focused on making a living right away. I think that's like that's the way to go. I think people, m- many more people should be making product businesses as their first step to learn how to sell, to learn how to ship, and to get an income stream going. And then later on, uh, maybe do something that's a little bit higher risk, higher reward. Um, and I, I think that in some cases, though, you can you can grow, you know, really to the point where you are. At the scale of a venture-backed startup, because just because you're in such a cash-rich business, so uh, Basecamp is an example of this. I, I mean, I, I've, I've I was actually at startup school, and, and David gave his uh, it's a, a really well received and a, a well delivered talk on this subject about um, about venture-backed startups versus bootstrapping, and you can Google around for it. It's uh, I think it was in 2008, maybe, and. Uh, I, I think Basecamp is an unusual case, though, because they are their software as a service, and that is the sort of business that you might be able if, to to grow organically, sort of indefinitely. But I, I will say that, I mean, Basecamp makes a fortune, and the the val- I mean, if Base if Basecamp wanted to uh, to go public, I think they probably could. It's maybe it's just it's just such a cash rich business, though it doesn't really matter. And since the they didn't take venture funding, they don't have to because there's no one who needs to cash out, particularly. Um, but Basecamp really is the kind of company that might have been defeated in the marketplace if there had been a venture-backed startup at the right time and place with good enough people. Um, I just think the people who started Basecamp are so good and then they're in uh, such a cash-rich, or, you know, they're in a business where they can be charging right away that they've been able to grow big uh, in terms of their revenues, at least, without taking VC. What was your experience like at Y Combinator? What did you apply with, and what lessons did you well, learn? Well, so truthfully, the, the, y, I, I'm a big supporter of Y Combinator, and I'm, I'm glad to have done it. But the, the actual, my actual experience was often painful, and like truthfully, I don't, I don't like to talk about what I applied with, and it's just, oh, it's just, sure, it's, you don't it's really to. unpleasant. It was just like <laughs> we switched ideas a couple times. We had to, you know, had to talk to investors way earlier than we really wanted to. It was, it was oh. really kind of a mess. Um, mm. And I think, in fact, if you look at the companies that go through Y Combinator now, uh, most of them, a major- like uh, an actual majority of them, have taken funding from someone else already. And they're they're real, they're the kinds of companies that I generally recommend go through Y Combinator. Is there are some cases where people just started from scratch and did well, but generally speaking, the more successful companies are ones where they've already got a product, they're already launched. Um, and uh, you know they've or, or, or maybe not, at the very least they've been developing it for for a while before doing YC and YC just takes them to the next level. Um, but uh, but I'll say that that uh, the the idea. So I just want to go b- back briefly. I mean we're talking about this idea of the venture backed startup and and that model. Um, and I, I one of the things that I. I try to resist is this idea of being proud at not of not taking money it depends on like should the google founders be like ashamed that they took money <laughs> right like you couldn't build google without without uh with well actually without investment it was actually they were built by angel investors they they took i think like 75 million dollars in angel funding before they even um 
before they even went to VCs. And they were able to drive a really hard bargain with their venture capitalists because they were in such a strong negotiating position, having already raised so much money and gotten so much traction. But Google, they had there were these big upfront costs. They had to buy bandwidth basically, and and they had to build they had to build they had to build out their infrastructure to index the web. They just couldn't do that by bootstrapping. There's just there's no way that you could build Google uh, by bootstrapping. Um, Uber nowadays is exactly the kind of company you absolutely like. That is a land grab situation. The right thing for Uber to do is to expand as fast as possible, given that they're the. If they win, they, they can. They're basically addressing the market of like urban mass transit. It's like the the market is unbelievably vast, <laughs> and and so the right thing for them to do is to to keep expanding to new cities, and and so and it's weird because people will they'll, they'll criticize companies for growing without any any business model or, or, or without any real concrete plan to make money, as if they're they're idiots. But you have to remember the people who are investing in these companies are the best. At, in the world at what they do. They are not idiots. They're not investing in Twitter thinking, oh, well, maybe someday they'll... Like, they, 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 don't, they don't want Twitter to have a business model right away. Right? I mean, now they want them to have a business model because they've gotten so huge. <laughs> but the point is that when you're growing so fast, that basically you have to choose between growing and, make, and making cash in the short term. And so the question is, like, like, th- these companies, what they're trying to do is to maximize their total value, right? The way you do that is by maximizing the, the revenues like over an infinite time horizon. So you would much rather make like $10 billion a year in five years than make you know, $100 million this year. Even if so, if you maybe you have an option to do the the to make 100 million this year, but it's it's if you're trying to build a, a, as big a business as possible, which certainly you are if you're a venture backed startup, then you you're happy to to defer that to the future and you know in in, a, in exchange for for growing right now, especially when you're in a winner take all market where there are strong network effects, um, it's it's just you will lose you will lose someone will will take over that market unless you grow, um, and so I, I feel like a lot of people overgeneralize from their own experiences and and it's just it's such a weird criticism to say well this company is is growing so fast without a business model like if you have a billion customers. Like you built a valuable company, right? Maybe it's not going to be Google scale. And Google, even Google, didn't know what they were doing exactly. Uh, they were they thought they could put banner ads up there, and then the then the uh, the, the tech bubble burst, and DoubleClick was like, was ailing, and they actually had to to figure out what they were going to do, and they ended up. A, they they adapted a model developed by a company called GoTo um, later later Overture, and in fact they had. They eventually had to pay a large settlement. Like there was a patent involved that Google violated. They Yahoo by that time had bought the bought Overture, and so they had to pay Yahoo like a significant uh, settlement. But the point is that Google was they they were doing the right thing by growing, and they they found their business. As it turned out, one of the world's best business models ever was just like was undeveloped, and uh, and it was was barely being claimed. Like only GoTo was doing it. But so so Google had this amazing business model that the people express an intention when they go to a search engine. And it turns out that selling text ads against those searches is unbelievably effective. Although back then you had to pay for servers. So that's, that, that's a pretty big difference. That, that's true. So you're right. So I mean, ser- servers and, and bandwidth were, were more expensive back then. But, but the point is that uh, the only way to win that market is to grow fast. And so basically, when you take money, is you're saying the money is worth more. Like we we need to grow now, and we need money now to grow. Eventually, we'll make lots of you know we'll be able to to turn this into income. But the idea that somehow you're less of a business because you aren't making money right away, it just I think misunderstands the nature of business. That well, what I, what I do like about the conversation is that most business, I think most businesses, most software businesses are not Uber where you need to expand into a bazillion different markets with a bazillion different products all at once. They're not Zenefits where you need to hire a bazillion salespeople. Um, they're like you're, they're like Dropbox, right? Or you're like building a very specific product and it's like, you know, you, do you really need to hire a bazillion engineers if you're Dropbox? I, I don't know. Probably not, maybe. Yeah. Like, I mean, no, and if right. you don't need to pay for servers – what do you need capital for? So it's it's not that you should not raise capital. It's that this is 
absolutely worth questioning the dogmas of venture capital. I, I completely agree. And, and I, I think actually David specifically talked about Dropbox as a company that could have bootstrapped. Although, honestly, it's hard to argue with Dropbox's results. Like They've done very well. Um, but, but I know where he's coming from. So, so that, let me say that there is a legitimate criticism, which is uh, what, what might be called a cargo cult startups. Um, and so th this is a reference to uh, something that the physicist Richard Feynman mentioned, actually at a commencement address at Caltech, where he talked about these uh, cargo cults in, um, in the South Pacific that uh, what, during World War II, there, there were these uh, the planes would come in, the allied planes would come in with, with, uh, with stuff, what the, the natives called cargo. And after the war ended, there were these sort of religious cults that arose that oh, would make yeah. fake uh, like landing strips with like with, with people you know in their little air towers and they would go through the motions they would do the things that used to bring the cargo but of course that's not that they're just not understanding the cause and effect there <laughs> and so there absolutely is I know. So I, th I think when when people like with David Ahmeyer Hansen and Amy Hoy talk you know sort of rail against this culture of of, of taking money what I think they, they overshoot a little bit sometimes because there are, there's like I said there's nothing particularly to be proud of that you didn't bootstrap like if you're if you're Google you shouldn't feel bad that you that you didn't bootstrap or if you're Twitter you shouldn't feel bad that you didn't bootstrap and whether you think Twitter is a good company now or not like clearly the early investors in Twitter are very happy with the results um, but so so they, I, like I said I think they overshoot a little bit but the criticism is absolutely right like the general criticism is right on which is the idea I think that what I'm calling cargo cult startups this idea that a lot of people think that in order to be a successful company, they need to do what other successful companies have done. Like, like the people who, who did these cargo cults, they go, kind of go through the motions. They go to networking events. They, they have meetings with investors. They raise money. And they think that this is what's going to make them successful. But They go through Y Combinator? But no, so, here's, and, uh, so Y Combinator is actually a perfect example of, of how, to, how to, uh, to bust that cargo cult because Y Combinator's uh, motto is make something people want. Because and what, what what you'll learn if you if you do Y Combinator, if you read Paul Graham's essays, or if you talk to the Y Combinator partners, they will tell you to ignore all that stuff. Do not go to networking events just for the sake of networking. Don't just go through the motions. What you need to be doing is talking to your customers. What you need to be doing is figuring out how are you going to make something that people actually want. And notice they don't say make something people pay for, right? Because if you could be you could make if you make something. It's so hard to make something people want. That. Yes, it's better to make something people are willing to pay for. But just making something people want is so hard. Like, let's not make the problem any harder than we have to. <laughs> uh, so, so, that, so that's the way you, you, you solve that, that, that dilemma. Like, how do you not become a, a cargo cult startup founder? And the answer is you listen to your customers. And you try to make something that people actually want and that they will tell their friends about. And the best way to measure your success in that regard is is your growth, whether it's the, the number of, of people you have signed up or uh, your revenues, if you're, you know, if you're, if you have a revenue model initially. Um, but whether you take money or not is, is really uh, a secondary consideration. What you, what your, your focus should be making something people want. And uh, if it turns out that you're making something that people want so much that you're having trouble keeping up with the growth and you need to hire people, well, th that's, that's music to every investor's ears. Especially if they, if you're a known quantity, if they've like heard of something you've done, or but if you can, if you can approach an investor and say, "Here's our growth curve," they don't even need to know really what it is. It's like, is it number of users? Is it whatever? If you can say, <laughs> "We're going like we're going vertical here," and if you can just say, "We are capital constrained right now. We're growing so fast we can't keep up. We need to raise some money." Every investor here is like, "All right, well, if if that that's what they do, is they in, they put money in where if it's like you're growing so fast you can't keep up, well, we'll give you some money so you can keep up." That's when you should raise money. If, you, if you're not feeling the pain, if you're not growing so fast that you can't keep up, then, you're, then taking money is probably a mistake. Uh, and, uh, and you should be focusing on making something people want. Um, but it's, never, it's not wrong to take money under those circumstances, though. And so like, with the stuff I'm working on now, um, so I've got these prerequisites, learn enough prerequisites, and we're, we're actually working on other learn enough tutorials. I'm working with several people who are making more advanced tutorials that will lead out of the Rails tutorial or other Learn Enough products. And I'm, we're also working on make, turning the whole thing, including the Rails tutorial and all the Learn Enough things, into a subscription service that will have a more structured course. And so going forward in the next, like, next year or two, it's possible that we will hit a point where we're growing so fast that 
we like I don't want to take money. It's a hassle. I don't like the idea of having investors. You have to keep them in the loop. You have like they they have you can't just ignore their emails. It's a weird sort of thing. You can't fire them, but they can't fire you. It's like a weird sort of uh, semi peer relationship. I would rather avoid it if I can. Uh, I would love to bootstrap, learn enough, and maybe have soft cover take off in terms of people using it to make their products. I would love to do that. But if at some point we're growing so fast, we can't keep up, then I'm going to start sending emails to people saying, hey, <laughs> we're growing so fast, we can't keep up. You want to write us a check? Yeah. Well, we can only hope that that gets servicized with AngelList in the next yeah. decade or so. Yeah. That'd be great. Anyway, well, Michael, thanks for coming on Software Engineering Daily. We've talked for over an hour. It's been awesome conversing with you um uh some about rails mostly about business apparently (laughs) um so yeah this was fantastic um i really appreciate you coming on it's been a real pleasure i am i had a great time look forward to uh uh just to seeing seeing how if people like it i hope they do we hope we i hope we've made something people want (laughs) right (laughs) okay cool i think they'll love it